Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. As you know, you're in the middle of a series on the history and the life of Abram. Last week we heard that when Abram returned from the battle with the five kings in the east and he brought back Lot and his family and all the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah and their cattle and much spoil, Abram met with Melchizedek, king of Salem, that means king of peace, and the priest of God Most High. Now this Melchizedek is a rather enigmatic figure in the Old Testament. And last Sunday, Pastor, Pastor Baker explained to us that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. That means he's in the Old Testament, he's before Christ, but he points us to some essentials, some truth about Christ. Melchizedek was a priest and a king, and as Stephen explained to us, Jesus is our high priest with God, and Jesus is our king. So today I want to kind of weave a text from the Gospel of John into the story of Abram. I'm going to read a text from John chapter 6. And while I read this text, I want you to think about this question. Have you made Jesus the king of your life? Think about this. Have I made Jesus the king of my life? Now, it is our habit and custom in Germany to stand while we read the word of God. So may I invite you to stand while I read the word of God? John 6, verses 1 through 27. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were deceased. And Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish. 
as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with, with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over to the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not come. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is a life and it is at work in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings we have from your word and from your church. And Lord, we ask you this morning that you open our hearts and our ears that we understand what you want to teach us this morning. And I ask you, Lord, that you bless my words that they may be pleasing to you. Amen. And you may be seated. Where God is, there is the fullness of life. If you look at this text, the key words are much and many. There were many people, a great multitude, 5,000 men. That's just another way of saying many men, because the disciples didn't count them. 5,000 men, that means you add the women and the children, and it's probably something like 20,000 people. There was much grass. The place was very fertile. And the people ate as much as they wanted. 
there were 12 baskets of fragments left over. The number 12 in the Hebrew language is a number of completeness. So fullness was there. When God made the heavens and the earth, the grass and the herbs and the flowers and the trees were all sprouting and blooming and producing all the food that Adam and Eve and the animals desired. The seas abundant with an abundance of living creatures, the Bible says. The earth teemed with all sorts of animals and the skies were filled with birds. God said to the animals and to the first human beings, be fruitful and multiply. And what does that mean? It means God wanted as many as possible. God loves his creation and therefore he wants many animals and many, many human beings. There is never a point in history where God says, okay, I've had enough dogs. No, God says, dogs, go ahead and multiply. And there's never, and there will never be a point in time when God says, okay, enough people. I've had enough human beings, the boat is full. No, only godless people say the boat is full. God wants his creation to multiply because he loves it. And that's why the fullness of life is where God is. In God's creation order, of course, there was no lack of anything. There was no scarcity, no hunger. Scarcity and hunger come into the world only after the fall, after our ancestors, Adam and Eve, decided to turn their backs on God, to decide for themselves what's good and what's bad, and to be their own masters. But even after the fall, this remains true. Where God is, there is the fullness of life. Well-being, spiritual well-being and physical well-being are indications of the love and the goodness of our Lord. God gave his people a land where you could scarcely grow anything, right? No. God gave his people a land flowing with milk and honey which means it was exceedingly fertile and the people could have a good life. Everyone his own vineyard and his own fig tree. That was the sign of the abundance of life. And Psalm 112 tells us, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandments. Wealth and riches will be in his house. Now, I'm not saying that God wants to make everybody rich. What I'm saying is where God is, we experience the fullness of life. And there are two reports in the Old Testament illustrating this principle. One is from the march of the people of Israel through the desert after the Lord had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. On this long march through the desert... The people get hungry, and there's not much food around, and so they go to Moses and they complain. They say, Moses, do something, we're hungry. And so Moses goes to the Lord, and he brings the complaint of the people to the Lord, and the Lord lets manna rain from heaven, bread from heaven. 
And the next morning, there's bread lying everywhere. And the people go out and they collect this bread. Everybody exactly as much as he needed. And so God had turned scarcity into fullness. The other report comes from the second book of Kings and tells us about Elisha, the prophet. A man came to the prophet and brought him 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain. And the text tells us that the sons of the prophets had just lost their food. Something had gone wrong. They had put something bad into the stew, and so the food was gone. And so here's Elisha, the prophet, with 20 barley breads. And the prophet says, give the breads to the people. 100 disciples of the prophets who had nothing to eat. Elisha's servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? But Elisha insisted, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. And so they ate and they had some left over. And God had turned scarcity into fullness. So fullness, fullness of life is a characteristic of our God. Good things, love and mercy abound with God. And because Jesus is the son of God, fullness is a characteristic of Jesus. The miracle which John reports in this text illustrates this point. There's a large crowd that had followed Jesus that day. The other Gospels tell us that these 20,000 people had walked for hours and hours to hear Jesus preach about the kingdom of heaven and to see Jesus perform signs, to see him heal the blind and the deceased. At the end of the day, Jesus invited them to a great banquet. And he had already carefully picked a place with much grass so the people could sit down comfortably or even lie down as they did in those times to eat comfortably. Jesus made them lie down or sit down in groups of 50. In other words, he's creating a seating order and that shows he's the Lord and Master of that day. Jesus himself distributed the five loaves of barley bread and the two fish among the people until all had eaten as much as they wanted and they were completely satisfied and completely filled. Now, as I told you, the reference points for this story are Moses and Elisha. But there are very significant differences here. Moses brought the people's request to the Lord and the Lord turned scarcity into fullness. It was not Moses who did the miracle. It was the Lord. And manna was provided in exactly the quantity needed. There wasn't an iota of surplus. But here it is Jesus who performs the miracle. And there's a lot left over. And so that shows Jesus is certainly greater than Moses. And Elisha fed 100 men with 20 loaves of barley bread. Jesus fed 20,000 people with five little barley breads and two fish. 
And that shows Jesus is surely greater than one of the greatest prophets of the past. And he is indeed. He is the Son of God. And therefore, where Jesus is, there is the fullness of life. And the people are filled until they are satisfied. And of course, if you think about it, it has to be that way. It couldn't be otherwise. Because just imagine you have 20,000 people who follow Jesus that day. They're seeking the kingdom of heaven. They're listening to his preaching about the goodness and the fullness and the wonderful life in the kingdom of heaven. And then it's evening and he says, well, people, that's it for today. Go home and enjoy being hungry. Now, what kind of message would that have been? It would have told the people, look, the kingdom of heaven is all well and nice for your souls, but it's not for your bodies. It would have told people, Jesus is interesting in your soul, but he's not interested in your body. And that's just not true. The goodness and the salvation of our Lord is for the spiritual, but also for the bodily existence of all men. God loves the whole person, soul and body. God wants us to be well spiritually, but also physically, bodily. And to show that, Jesus held this great banquet a banquet like there had never been one before, 20,000 people eating their fill from five loaves and two fish. And so people don't listen to what modern theology teaches. A lot of modern theology says, well, you know, that wasn't really five loaves and two fish, and it's only a symbolic report to show the goodness of our Lord. But if we say that, we make Jesus a, piper t a paper tiger, right? We give Jesus a wonderful message, but then when the rubber hits the road and the message becomes concrete, he's a complete failure. That is not our Lord. The Bible does, doesn't give us any reason to think of Jesus in such small terms. On the contrary, it shows us God is the Lord over the whole world, over all people, and over all the needs of all people. Eating and drinking is surely a part of my life, and I bet it is a part of your life. And so eating and drinking is a part of your relationship with your God. John speaks of a real meal with real bread and real fish filling real persons. A real miracle. That's the whole point, not a symbolic one. Now, what these people experienced that day is sort of an enactment of something Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said, Do not worry what you shall eat and drink. Seek the kingdom of heaven first, and all that will be given to you. In other words, get your priorities right. Focus on the kingdom of heaven and God will provide food and drink and shelter and clothes and everything you need. Now, the people 
on that day had done that, even if they didn't realize it, they had sought the kingdom of heaven first. They had followed Jesus. They had not worried about food. They probably didn't think about food the whole day. They thought it was much, much more important to be close to Jesus than to go and buy bread. And of course, they were right. And uh, in that evening, Jesus fulfills what he had promised in the Sermon of the Mount. They had sought the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gave them the bread and the fish they needed. Where Jesus is, there is the fullness of life. And what a contrast between our Lord and ordinary people like us. Jesus actually points his disciples and us to this contrast when he asks Philippus, where do we buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, you have to know that Philippus came from that area. So he knew where the bakery was. You know, he knew all the bakehouses in the city. And he probably also knew the going prices of bread in that, at that time. And so what does he do? He looks into the money bag, 200 denarii, that would be 200 daily wages at the time. That would have been enough to feed Jesus and his disciples for a couple of weeks, several weeks. But it was not enough to feed 20,000 people even one evening. And meanwhile, Andreas, Simon Peter's brother, had found this little boy who had five little loaves of barley bread and two little fish. Well, you want to know that barley bread at the time was beggar's food. You could never get a good fill from a barley bread. So five barley bread, what's that for 20,000 people? It's nothing. And that's exactly the point. A man who looks at his own possibilities, what he has, finds barely enough to survive. If we look at ourselves only and at our own possibilities, we see very little. Disappointingly little. That's why we never stop worrying. But we have to learn to look to God if we want to experience the fullness of life. If we rely on our own potential, we remain hungry. But if we trust in God's provision for us, that's when we will be filled. And the trouble is, for you and for me, that that's completely against our nature. Our nature is that we look in our pockets, what we have, what we have in the closet, and that's how we want to survive. It's not in our nature to look to God. And it wasn't in Philippus and Andreas' nature to look to God or to Jesus. Remember at this point, these two men had already walked with Jesus through Judea and Galilee for at least a year. They had seen plenty of miracles that Jesus performed. So when Jesus said, look at these 20,000 people, they're hungry, where do we get bread? Logically, the answer should have been, Lord, you know. But it's against their nature. 
They look into the money bag and the little thing they have. And Jesus knew it. The text says Jesus knew what he was doing already. But he wanted to teach them. And he wants to teach us that we learn to look to Jesus. As individuals and as a church, we have to learn not to constantly make the same mistake as these two men. We must learn to look away from ourselves. We must learn to look to Jesus instead because the fullness of life is not with us, it's with him. And therefore, if we want to experience the fullness of life, we have to look to him. Now, you also want to realize how Jesus turned five little loaves of bread and two little fish into a banquet filling 20,000 people. What's his technology to do that? It's very simple. He thanked God and then he started giving it away. And that is the principle of the kingdom of heaven. The principle is you thank God for the little you have and then you give it away and then it becomes more and more and more until everybody has had enough. It's exactly the opposite from what we naturally do. When we realize we have only scarce resources, what do we do? Well, the first thing is we collect them to ourselves and then we hold on to them and then we keep our, our fists closed so that we can hold on to what we have and it remains little. And what Jesus shows us is God's recipe of turning scarcity into fullness is you thank God and you give away. And everybody has enough. Paul says in Acts 20, God, um, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And what Jesus shows us is that that's true. Right? God blesses the giving and it becomes more and more. And why is that? It's because every time we give something away, it's a confession of faith. Every time we give something away, we say, Lord, I don't think I need this, and I trust in you providing more. And that's what pleases God, and therefore God blesses it. And he shares his fullness with us. With us. Now, probably at this point, you want to stop and say, well, pastor, this is all very well, but in reality, of course, we don't experience this. So let me tell you a story from the recent life of our church over in Germany in Sturm. Earlier this year, I heard that the city was going to open a home for refugees close to our building. You have probably heard that Germany is going through a refugee crisis. Thousands and thousands of people from Africa and the Middle East coming into Germany. And so I said to the church one Sunday morning, the poverty and the despair of these refugees is a challenge to us. God is giving us work to do, so let's go ahead and do it. Now, this church consists of mostly old women, white hair, 
pretty frail. Nobody's rich in that church. And so they all look at me in the same way that Philippus and Andreas were looking at Jesus that day. And they say, well, pastor, look, we're old, we're weak, what can we do? Well, God already knew what he was doing. And so a little later, a group of Africans, people who came to Germany in the 1990s, came to me and said, we have learned how to get our feet on the ground in Germany. We came 15, 16, 20 years ago. We have jobs, we have homes, we have families. And so now we want to go and show these new arrivals how to get their feet on the ground in Germany. But pastor, we want to do it with your church. And so all of a sudden, we have plenty of helping hands and we have plenty of people collecting clothes and shoes and toys and all sorts of things that the refugees need. And all our old women had to do was to bake a bunch of cakes and make coffee and come out to the refugees with us when we distribute all these good things to the refugees. And we were able to make people so happy. And now some of them who are Christians come to our services and we have fellowship with them. And, you know, God turned scarcity and, and weakness into fullness. And so we thank him and we praise him for his goodness. And we enjoy our new friends. So if we learn to look to God, people, we will experience that he is the same God as he was on that day when Jesus fed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And if we learn to give away the little we have, we will experience that he turns that little into very much. For he is good, and his mercy lasts forever. And so now the question is, how do we react to that? The end of this wonderful day and this wonderful banquet comes very abruptly and it's actually not very happy. The 20,000 people who had followed Jesus that day, seeking the kingdom of heaven, having seen the many signs that Jesus had performed, they get up and they want to make Jesus their king. John says that all the things that Jesus did, healing people, and even this great banquet was a sign. Now, what is a sign? A sign is something that points to something else, right? And so what John is saying, all these miracles that Jesus performed were signs pointing to the truth about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the King of the whole world. And if these people who had followed Jesus that day had understood the signs, what should they have done? Well, obviously, they should have done to the Son as to the Father. They should have realized he is the Lord over the whole world. And so they should have fallen on their faces and worshipped him and glorified him. 
And then looking at him and looking at themselves, they should have realized that with all their sins, their greed, their lust, their striving for public recognition, their constant cheating of God on God's own law, they were sinners. They could not stand in the presence of the Lord. And so they should have begged Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. But these 20,000 people did not understand the signs. And so when they were filled with food, they got up and came to make Jesus their king by force. And at that point, Jesus leaves them alone and goes on a mountain. And the fullness is over. What a sad ending of such a glorious day. And now we look at that and we remember what Pastor Baker said last week that Jesus is the king of our lives and we say, Jesus, what's wrong with you? These people wanted to make you king. Isn't that wonderful? Why did Jesus not allow these people to do what seems so right? Well, the first thing is that Jesus, that these people wanted to make Jesus king. But Jesus already was king. Every four years, you Americans make a president, right? You elect a president. You make him president. And that says the people are above the president. The sovereignty is with the people, not with the president. And so keeping that in mind, when the people tried to make Jesus king, they were in fact putting themselves above Jesus. It is a rebellion against the word of God who says in Psalm 2, I have set my king on the holy hill of Zion. Making a king is the prerogative of God, not of the people. By trying to make Jesus king, the people denied God his sovereignty. And they robbed Jesus of the royal glory that was already his. They thought that their own glory was greater than the glory of this man, Jesus, that they had followed that day. And so, it's an act of pride. Second, the people wanted to make Jesus king on their own terms. If they could make him king... They could also unmake him king, right? Like you guys can decide not to re-elect a president. And so they certainly thought if we make this man Jesus our king, and we can also unmake him king, he will want to hold on to his royal glory, and therefore he will rule in the way that we want him to rule. No laws, please, which are too hard. No rules which constrain our freedom. No taxes which are too high. And at the beginning of this report, John makes a, a little remark which sounds like an aside. The Passover of the Jews was near. Now that's like saying the 4th of July was near to Americans. The 4th of July is a day of national pride, right? You celebrate the freedom and the greatness of this country. And that's what Passover was for the Jews. They celebrated the liberation from slavery in Egypt. 
they celebrated the victory over the great king of Egypt. They celebrated the possession of their own land. And all this is in the background when they come and they want to make Jesus king. And so they're thinking, if Moses was a liberator, Jesus will be a liberator. And he'll throw out the stupid Romans, which we all hate, so that we can live in our land according to our own rules, which of course means we can have all the sins that we delight in. And third, the people wanted to make Jesus king so that he would serve him. If Moses was able to feed the people for 40 years in the desert, certainly Jesus would be able to provide free food and other goodies as long as Jesus was there. He had just shown that he was able to do that. And so they wanted to make Jesus king so that he would serve their own interests. Instead of seeking the kingdom of heaven, they wanted to put Jesus at the top of their own kingdom so that he would deliver whatever they desired. And so what was wrong with them trying to make Jesus king? Everything was wrong. Everything was wrong. If Jesus had allowed them to do that, they would have committed at least three deadly sins. They would have robbed God of his glory and Jesus of his glory. They would have subjected the Son of God to their own rules instead of obeying the rules of the Son of God. And they, they would have abused the Son of God for their own material interests. And so Jesus was actually very merciful when he withdrew and didn't allow them to do that. So let me get back to my initial question. Have you made Jesus the king of your life? Brothers and sisters, I hope not. Because if you have made Jesus the king of your life, you're likely to have committed the same sins that these people were about to commit. Philippians 2 says this about Jesus. God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus all knees should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth. And that says Jesus is the king of everything, the whole world. Jesus was the king over your life even before you were born. And so it is for us to glorify him as king. It is for us to surrender ourselves to his kingship. I know that many churches teach otherwise. And I know a good number of Christians who think they are good Christians when they very proudly say, I made a decision for Christ. And what you hear in the background always is, and you know, Christ can be pretty happy that I did that. Because I'm a mighty good person. And so Jesus is really happy to have me. And that's pride. You're putting your own smarts above the mercy 
and the glory of Jesus. Because nobody in this room has made a decision for Christ. Certainly I haven't made a decision for Christ. Jesus himself in the same chapter in the Gospel of John says, nobody, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. It is never our decision. It is always God's decision to call us in the first place. And then, by the grace of God, we may have faith. Everything else is pride. Christian Smith is a professor of sociology and director of the Center for the Study of Religion and Society at... I don't even dare say the name, Notre Dame University. I thought that was only Indiana University. But no, it's Notre Dame University up in South Bend. And Christian Smith published a book, a study of the religious beliefs of young Americans a number of years ago. Christian Smith calls their faith commitments, which he has gleaned from hundreds and hundreds of interviews, he calls it moralistic, therapeutic, Deism, moralistic, therapeutic deism, that's a mouthful. And Smith says that's not only young people in America, it is pervasive in the American society. Now, what is MTD? He summarizes moralistic, therapeutic deism in five statements. Number one, a God exists and orders the world and watches over human life. Number two, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by other world religions. Number three, the central goal of your life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when he's needed to solve problems. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, do you get the point? The word sin, have you heard it? The word mercy, have you heard it? The word Lord of lords and King of kings, have you heard it? The fact that we need to surrender to him, have you heard it? No. MTD is the modern way of making Jesus the king in the way these people wanted to make Jesus king. It's the belief that Jesus is there to throw out the Romans of your life, which is all the problems and all the things you can't cope with. Put them out of your life. That's what Jesus is for so that we can be happy. Jesus is there to leave us alone so that we can be happy on our own terms except when we need him to solve a problem and we're in trouble. Jesus is there so we don't have to worry about what happens after our lives because we're good people, right? We're fair, we're nice. Jesus is the king ruling on our terms. And he's the king serving our needs and interests. And if this is how you made Jesus the king of your life, it is time to come to grips with reality. Because 
Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus is the king who rules this world on his terms, which are stated in the Bible, the word of God eternally. We cannot make him king. He is king. And it is for us to surrender to his kingship and live or to rebel against it and die. And what does it mean to surrender? It means to acknowledge that he is all-powerful by falling flat on our faces and worshiping him. He is righteous and we are sinful. He is powerful and we are helpless. Surrender means that we worship him and we serve him and we beg him for mercy and we try to live lives that please him. How? Well, before I get there, I want to say just a few words about the scandal that's going on in verses 16 to 21. John says that the disciples got into a boat and went across the lake to Capernaum. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus actually sent them to do that. Jesus said to his disciples, come on guys, go to the boat and get going across the sea. And then we read that a storm came up and it blew so fiercely that the disciples were fearing for their lives. And so now you ought to ask yourself, if Jesus is the king of the world, did he not know that a storm was coming up? And the answer is, certainly he knew that. And so then you ought to ask, well, if Jesus is the king of the world, and he knew a storm was coming up, how could he send his disciples into the middle of this great danger? That's the scandal. And what's the answer? Why did he do that? The answer is that he knew for his disciples to remain with the people who wanted to make Jesus king was a much bigger danger than the storm. Because we know from the Gospels that the disciples actually had the same aspirations. They were discussing among themselves, well, you know, when Jesus is king, we'll have a great life. Because we will be the royal court. And all sorts of people will come to us with their demands and their requests from Jesus. And so we will be very influential. And we will receive plenty of gifts. And we will be revered almost like Jesus is. And if on that day the people had made Jesus king, the disciples would have supported them. And knowing that, Jesus sent them away. Into the middle of the storm. But Jesus was up on the mountain. He could see what was going on on the lake. And when the storm became too fierce... He came and saved them because he is king. But there's a lesson to learn here, which is Jesus does not want us to associate with people who want to make Jesus king on their own terms. We have nothing to do with MTD. Jesus is our king. We don't make him king. And it's dangerous for us to be with people who have wrong views of Jesus because we're always tempted to do the same. And therefore, it's better for us to be in a storm than to be in bad company.
Now, back to the people who wanted to make Jesus king. The next day, they meet Jesus in Capernaum, and Jesus chides them for coming to him to have their material interests fulfilled. And he says to them, Do not labor for food which perishes, but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Well, wait a minute. Labor? for eternal life does Jesus say we have to work to earn eternal life no that's not what he's saying it's another way of saying seek the kingdom of heaven first seeking means focus on it try to find it that's the labor that Jesus talks about and so the people look at him and they ask him but how what are we supposed to do and Jesus says, it's very simple. Believe in him who God sent, which is Jesus himself. That's all. Have faith in Jesus. Know that he is king. Worship him as king. Have faith in King Jesus. That's all we need to do in order to enjoy the fullness of life. Have faith, people. And now you ask, but what does that mean, faith? And I'll be happy to explain. It will take about 45 minutes. So if you're ready, raise your hand. Okay, there was one person in the first service. <laughs> I won't do that because that's all in Genesis 15. So next week, you're going to return to the story of Abraham. And Pastor Bailey will explain to you what it means. Faith. And until then, even if you don't know what it means... Have faith in King Jesus. Amen.